you've got your uh, your sheet here with uh, your Levitic- Leviticus discussion questions and and uh, the graphic on the back and um, it's uh, these graphics I've mentioned and uh, and much of the content of these messages apart from just being uh, uh, overviews of the Bible and specific insights from the structure and the themes of the book. Uh, the Bible Project has provided a, a lot of these graphics for us, and when I was considering doing this sermon series, um, they had a little book, uh, a little bound, spiral-bound book with all these graphics in them, and you just flip through, and I mean, it's got graphics for all 66 books of the Bible. It's a, kind of a cool little coffee table or, or desk uh, book to have, uh, and, uh, and very helpful in Bible study as well. And I thought about buying one, and I saw you could get the graphics for free, and I said, well, you know, we're, we'll, we'll just print them out. Uh, and, um, and so uh, my parents are here. Uh, they, they came in from Vietnam um, where they are, uh, are serving alongside some Vietnamese business leaders and building relationships there. And, uh, and they were bringing uh, this huge Santa Claus uh, bag full of gifts to the girls and, and, uh, and to us. And it was wonderful just to reconnect with them. And they pulled... Uh, this book out, and they said, uh, they said the church in Vietnam is, uh, is going through something called the Bible Project, and we wanted to buy this for you so that you could have it, because it was really neat. And I just kind of looked at Mandy, and I was like, yes, Lord. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. And I said, uh, well, Mom and Dad, you'll never believe um, we're doing the exact same thing. I was like, isn't that just providence. Uh, and so uh, I'll have this if you want to look forward. We've, we've made those available to you on our website, and we'll be giving them out to you along with the discussion questions in the bulletin each week. And so uh, anyway, this series has been wonderful for me. I hope it's been wonderful for you. I'm appreciative to Tanner uh, for preaching through Exodus last week. That's not an easy task, and I, I'm glad that he, um, he served the Lord well in his study time and then in his preaching to you. And just as, a, as by way of, of a refresher, the reason we're doing this is because um, so often we, are, uh, we open the Bible and we begin to look for ourselves. We just immediately look for action steps or principles to apply to my life when you need to know that's not the original intention that God gave us uh, in the Bible. The original intention that God gave us in the Bible is that we would know Him. And the way that we know Him is to read about Him, to, to read the stories of what God has done in the lives of people all throughout history, that, that really the, the story of history is His story. And that's where the title of the sermon series comes from. And the only way that you're going to find your lowercase s story is when you understand His capital S story. That's the goal for this year, is to understand his story. And we've, so far, we have done uh, Genesis, Job, and Exodus, and the studies have been rich, and I, I've just heard from feedback from you that you are uh, gaining new insight into uh, the Word of God in a way that you never had before, and many of us have grown up in church uh, for decades and decades and decades, and we've never heard these things. And so you're already seeing the fruitfulness and the, the profitableness of, of what we're doing. And so I, I just want to continue to encourage you each week to stick with it. Uh, if you're doing Bible reading and you're behind, stick with it. Um, because I'm behind, if that makes you feel any better. I, I'm behind as well, so we're, we're, we're all in this together. But, um, but all that to say, He is the center. And we get that from the very first book of the Bible, In the Beginning, God. 
right? The very first words of the very first sentence of the Bible shows us that he is the main character. And so the fact is, is that uh, he, since he is the main character, that he is worthy of the praise of all creation and every creature that's been created. And this is, I would persuade you, this is why uh, we have been created, is so that we can, uh, we can be in his presence. Hayden, if you'll click me over on my slide there, I'm having trouble getting it. Um, is so that we can be in his presence. That's why you were created. That's why I was created. Uh, that's why everybody has been created. And that's why we've been created uniquely, which is the whole foundation of what we're talking about tonight. The sanctity of human life argument does not begin with Roe versus Wade. The sanctity of human life argument begins in Genesis chapter 1. And so we're going to talk about that tonight. And we're going to, like I said, I'm going to give you a proper foundation for, for celebrating life, not just being able to defend it, and how we can celebrate life. We want to be known for what we're for, not just what we're for, for what we're against. And so that's going to be an equal component of tonight. But we were, we were created to live in the presence of God. And God has created us uniquely uh, to walk in a relationship with Him more than any other creature on this earth. And so we want to live in His presence. We were made to live in His presence and know His glorious character. But when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, they were cut off from God's presence and from living in that presence and living in that relationship. And so how would they fulfill the mission that God gave them to be fruitful and multiply and create and cultivate the earth and all these kinds of things? How would they, how would they fulfill this goal that God had put before them that they needed to live in the presence of God to complete? Well, that's why God initiated His rescue plan in Genesis chapter 12 with the family of Abraham. And we ended Genesis with Abraham's great-great-grandchildren moving to Egypt, which set up the events of the Exodus that you heard about last week, where God so mightily delivered His people and revealed His purpose of giving them a promised land that would be their own. And they met Him at Mount Sinai, and even in the midst of just utter faithlessness, God still kept His promise to them and gave them His law. And this law would define them and make them a people after God's own heart. And there at Mount Sinai, this covenant was made, it was cut, and that was meant to shape them into His unique people. The the Ten Commandments and also this thing that we find at the end of the book of Exodus called the Tabernacle, which if you want to think about it, think about it as a mobile worship unit. That's what it was. The Tabernacle was a mobile worship unit. And with that and these Ten Commandments, which were laws... That would set them apart from the rest of the people, and God's presence would reside in their midst. And remember that living in God's presence was the reason human beings were created, but sin separated us from His presence. So the construction of the tabernacle was a big deal in the whole plan of redemption. It was another step in the right direction, this presence of the tabernacle. But in the last paragraph of Exodus, so if you've turned to Leviticus chapter 1, Just look at the previous page. Another name for this tabernacle was the Tent of Meeting. And so you say, ah, that's the Tent of Meeting. Well, who was supposed to be meeting there? Well, God was supposed to meet with man. And specifically Moses and the priest. God was supposed to meet with with man. Man was supposed to have access to the presence of God once again because of that tabernacle. And yet Exodus chapter 40, verses 34 and 35, look at what they say. 
says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Once again, the presence of God is accessible to us. But Moses, verse 35, was not able to enter the tent of meeting because, essentially, because the presence of God was there. So like all good stories, last week ended on a cliffhanger. And I don't know if you have caught that as you've been reading, but now you have this perspective that, that when the book of Exodus closes, there's a problem. Man was made for the presence of God. God's restored a place for His presence to dwell, but man cannot enter into the presence of God because the presence of God is there. Do you see the problem with that? Man cannot meet with God because the presence of God is preventing him from coming in. What's wrong? Why can't Moses enter God's presence? If human beings were meant to live in the presence of God, what is keeping them from entering? And that's why we have the book of of Leviticus. This is the reason that Leviticus is where it is in the first five books of the Bible. Is because there's a problem. And the problem is man. Something specific about mankind that is preventing them from entering into God's presence. But the the book of Leviticus uses a very specific word to describe the presence of God that you need to know right here and right now. And that is holiness. Holiness. There is only one... uh, descriptive word that is used in the Bible repetitively to describe God. And do you know what that word is? Anybody? Isaiah chapter 6. Did they declare, do the angels around God's throne declare that He is perfect, perfect, perfect? Or that He is love, love, love? Or that He is justice, justice, justice? What does it say? That He is what? Holy, holy, holy. My, my former pastor, Al Jackson, he called, he says, this is the testimony of the thrice holy God, right? The thrice holy God. It's just one characteristic in all of Scripture that encapsulates God's character so much so that the angels themselves declare it over and over and over and over and over again, and that is His holiness. And so it's obviously important for us to understand What is God's holiness? Well, you need to know that God's uh, presence, because of His holiness, is so intense that it's unlike Him, uh, uh, that anything that is unlike Him cannot enter in to His presence without being consumed or destroyed. You see, God radiates this holiness, and His uniqueness and His glory in Scripture is described as a fire. Our God is a consuming fire. And so what better illustration to use to understand understand God's holiness than fire, right? These, uh, you really, uh, oh, I hate it. Uh, Our projector's going bad. So this is, uh, you really can't see it. It it doesn't, the the picture's so much better on, uh, on my computer. But these are these, this occupation, these guys are known as volcano divers. The, uh, this stuff that you see uh, back here behind uh, the, uh, the guy in the silver-looking uh, suit is actually the, in, the guts of a volcano. 
It's all of that lava that is just in there. And these guys wear these uh, protective suits, these heat-proof suits, and they go down and they actually m- take measurements. And they're, they're scientists. They're not, they're not uh, thrill-seekers necessarily, but they're scientists who go down and they take measurements of these active volcanoes. And these heat-proof suits allow them to, to quite literally stand beside active flows of lava, which are the temperature between 1,300 and 2,200 degrees Fahrenheit. That's just about 10 degrees cooler than black leather car seats in Alabama in July. (laughs) Right? Can I get an amen? I mean, we complain about the cold, but just know it's coming, right? (laughs) It's coming. And so these suits, it, it takes preparation to get in them, But because the physical heat does not uh, permeate these suits, they are able to draw near to that which, left by themselves, they would not be able to draw near. And there you get a good picture of the holiness of God. And there you also get a good picture of what Leviticus is talking about. Preparation must take place for sinful man to enter into the presence of God. That's what the book of of Leviticus is about. It's not physical heat, but it's our sin. It's our impurity. And this is so important to understand that God's holiness mandates that we approach God on His terms, not on our terms. We must approach God on His terms, not our terms. One of the reasons that we're doing this series is that we get a very clear picture, a, 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 a super biblical picture of the nature and character of God. Because we have a tendency toward imbalance. And we will emphasize certain characteristics of God over others. And we'll, we'll be you know, selective, and we'll just blatantly ignore other parts of God's character. But what this is going to force us to do is to come to grips with some of the things that God made it very clear to Israel, made it very clear to Israel that were non-negotiables about God and His presence. We approach God on His terms, not on our own terms. We saw this first with Cain and Abel, didn't we? Cain and Abel, the, the sons of Adam and Eve... They brought their offerings to the Lord, and God accepted the offering of Abel, and God rejected the offering of Cain, right? And so, once again, when we read the Bible, you need to understand that 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 was not condemnation on Cain that God rejected that gift. What it was was actually an invitation to Cain to worship properly, and in the same way, this first part of uh, the book of Leviticus shows us that we need to take very care- we need to approach very carefully and understand that God defines the terms of our worship. Because there is a crisis of unholiness and impurity that prevents us from living in the presence of God. And it's encapsulated in Leviticus chapter 11, verse 45. If you want a theme verse for Leviticus, that would be it. Leviticus eleven forty-five, which says, For I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt to, to be your God. You shall be holy, therefore, as I am holy. What does God want from us? God wants us to be holy as we approach Him 
And so let's summarize the book of Leviticus and understand what worship at the tabernacle looked like. Now, the book of, the book of, of I'm having such a hard time saying that word. Just have grace on me. I'm, I, I, I don't know why. I'm, I'm getting tongue-tied. Leviticus. Leviticus, Leviticus, Leviticus. Yeah, okay. And my tongue still works. Okay. The book of Leviticus has a structure that you would most likely miss if you started reading it without doing a flyover like we're doing today. You see, God addresses the problem of Israel's unholiness or impurity in three different ways that are revealed in the book. The first is the institution of rituals. The second is the uh, rituals and sacrifices. The second is the institution of priests. And third is God's testimony to them about what is pure and what is impure. And what you'll notice is, is that the book of Leviticus has seven different sections. I've only labeled six of them here. You'll see the seventh in a minute. It has seven different sections, and it basically bookends... Right? and creates this structure known in Hebrew poetry as a chiasm, or Hebrew literature as a chiasm, where it actually takes it and says, okay, you've got rituals here in chapters 1 through 7, and then you've got rituals also again in chapters 23 through 25. And then you've got priests in 8 through 10, and then you've got priests in 21 and 22. And then you've got purity in 11 through 15, and then you've got purity again in 18 through 20. And so it's this structure, once again, that if, you're, if you don't do a flyover of the book, you're going to miss this. Because I guarantee you, as I've talked to some of you this week, you're going to get caught up in why in the world is there so much blood? And why are we talking about certain fluids? That's just inappropriate, right? It's just If your kids are reading it, be prepared to answer some questions. Let me tell you, I've had some great ones from the book of Genesis. Hey, they've been... Ooh, Great conversations. The book, the book of Genesis is uh, it's great conversation starter. So just get ready for that. If you've got kids who are reading through the Bible with you, I hope you do. But that's the way this book is structured. And we don't want to miss this because, once again, as we saw uh, a couple weeks ago, even in the, in the construction or the structure of the wisdom literature, there's a meaning. And so the first thing that we want to look at is this idea of ritual sacrifices because, once again, that's where a lot of people get hung up. Basically, in chapters 1 through 7, there are eight different sacrifices to be offered by Israel. Five of these sacrifices are ways that they can say thank you to God. Three of these sacrifices are, way, are ways that they can say that they're sorry. You, you need to understand that. In, in chapters 1 through 7 of the eight sacrifices, five are ways to praise God. Three are ways to repent towards God. And so as they would repent towards these God, uh, I mean, uh, repent uh, with these sacrifices, they are essentially saying to God that their sin has brought evil and death into God's good world. But instead of them dying as they offer their sacrifices, those sacrifices die in their place. This, the blood of that animal covers over their individual sin. And this is a very, very, very important concept that you'll find all throughout Scripture called substitutionary atonement. Big $5 theological word, substitutionary atonement, where you offer a substitute for your sin and the blood of that substitute covers over your sin. Very important. And we'll draw kind of an arc to that later. That's important to remember. But he doesn't just, uh, the, the, Moses doesn't just write down these sacrifices in 1 through 7. He also picks it back up in 23 through 25. And God prescribes these seven annual feasts that Israel is meant to celebrate. 
Each feast celebrates a different part of God's work to deliver Israel and set them apart for his glory. So it's kind of like if we did have fellowship lunch today and we got together and we say, we just sat around the tables and somebody got up and they said, hey, uh, let's talk about what God did five years ago. And let's talk about how awesome he's shown himself to be since then. Hey, you, you know, you, you, you guys were here. Y'all tell stories. And y'all talk about how God is faithful to fulfill his promises. That's what they would do. They would get around and they would, that's where some of the Psalms were written. They would get around and they would talk and they'd fellowship and, and, and fathers would look at sons and say, hey son, let me tell you, when I was a boy, God did something amazing in taking us out of Egypt. And I want to make sure you know about that. And they would sit there and they would just talk about what God has done. That was the purpose of these feasts. And there were seven of them per, uh, each year that were meant to celebrate different aspects of God's plan of redemption. And so what happens is, is you have this incredible, um, very organic discipleship process that happened from generation to generation to generation to generation, not in teaching them outlines and doctrine and making them memorize lots of, lots of scripture, even though that's something that Judaism became known for in the future, but it was just through telling this awesome capital S story that we've been talking about. And so each, each time they would get together, whether it was for a festival or whether it was to offer sacrifice, they were being reminded of important things that God wanted them to remember. That's what the ritual sacrifices are for. Don't get caught up in some of the details and just, just get disinterested. It's all for a purpose, for remembrance, for atonement. And that was the first uh, thing that God told them about how to deal with their unholiness. The second thing was the priesthood, in chapters 8 through 10 and 21 and 22. You see, God, in, in chapters 8 through 10, he established Aaron, which was Moses' brother, Aaron and his sons as priests so that they could be like the worship leaders of Israel. Chapters 8 through 10 describe how to consecrate these priests or set them apart. I mean, they even had their own wardrobe, right? They, I mean, you, when you would see them coming, you would know, that guy's a priest, right? And that was on purpose. Like if, like if I had a, ro- a big paisley robe, you know, and you'd see me walking around. You're like, oh, that's my pastor right there. I'm not saying I want that, okay, but I'm just, just get a picture of it here. And so uh, the reason that the priests were unique above and beyond every other member of Israel is because they represented God to the people of Israel, and they represented Israel to the people of God. You, you really need to, if, you, if you're not writing that down, write that down. The, the importance of the priests was that they represented the people of God to God, and they represented God to the people of Israel. They were mediators, right? Standing in between Israel and God. And so because of this huge role, huge role chapters 21 and 22 actually emphasize the need for these priests to be men of character and to have great moral integrity because of the importance of their position. And just so you know how important the role of a priest is, you're uh, told this story in chapter 10 about Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu. And they come into the presence of the Lord unprepared. They come in uh, on their own terms, and they're offering uh, something that they call uh, strange fire. And it was basically a disregard for God's commands. And since priests were called 
to be very careful in how they approached God. And Nadab and Abihu didn't. It says, fire came out from the Lord and consumed them, and they fell dead there. And so, it's not, the presence of God is not something to be taken lightly. Especially you priests, make it your occupation to understand what the Lord requires of you. And then the last thing, the third thing, is this idea of impurity and purity. And this is another place that people get, get lost. Chapters 11 through 15 and chapters 18 through 20. You see, this ritual purity was something that God required of all of God's people. They would become impure just by touching anything that related to life and death. Just think of it that way. Anything that related to life or death, they would become uh, unclean if they touched these things. Now, you need to know that when the Bible talks about the people of God becoming impure, this was not a sin, okay? This was not a sin. It simply was a normal process of life. What, um, what was a sin was what we saw with Nadab and Abihu of entering into the presence of God without regard to His holiness. That's when you would sin, Being impure wasn't a sin. You would just go through a process and you would become pure and you could go worship again. But when you read these these and all these different descriptions, uh, including what they would touch and what they would eat and even what they would wear, know that God was helping them and us to understand that His holiness was meant to be thought of in every area of our life. His holiness consumes all of our lives. So if you want to enter into the presence of God as an Israelite, don't think you can hide something from Him. And church, guess what hasn't changed? Same thing. If you value and you cherish and you desire to enter into the presence of God today, don't think you can hide something from your, from your God. Because He won't be fooled. And so, this idea of purity and impurity in 11 through 15 talks about all these things that are kosher, right? And that's a Hebrew word meaning clean. But chapters 16 through 30 talk about the kind of impact that if, if Israel would pursue this purity then they would be a nation unlike every other nation on the earth. They would be people who are characterized by social justice. They would be people who are characterized by caring for the poor. They would be people who are characterized uh, by, um, uh, by integrity in, in, in such, to such a degree that it would reflect and it would exalt the holiness of God. What was the purpose of mankind? To live in God's presence? But being made in the image of God, when we live in God's presence, other people see God in us. And so God was prescribing all of this so that they could be restored to that original intention that He had. But the central event that unites all of these sections is a yearly ritual sacrifice and festival called the Day of Atonement. And literally, we talked about rituals, we talked about priests, we talked about purity, and they all come together in the entire book of Leviticus. You've missed this. The entire book of Leviticus is centered around, in chapters 16 and 17, this Day of Atonement. And so if you want to identify the most important thing in the book of Leviticus that deals with the rituals, that deals with the priest, that deals with the purity, that really does deal with the holiness of God, it's this idea of the Day of Atonement. It's the centerpiece because God wants you to truly understand this concept of atonement. This, on this day, the Hebrew priest, it was one day a year, the priest would approach God on behalf of the entire nation. The nation was probably getting quite large at this time, and so there would definitely be sin in the camp. 
And so the priest would approach God on behalf of the entire nation. And in doing so, he would take two goats, represented by our little goats right there. He would take two goats. And one of these goats would be killed and offered for the sin of the people. And the priest would literally take the blood there from the goat, and he would take it into the presence of God, and he would pour it out over the altar. And as he did so, it would symbolically... It was symbolic of a covering over of Israel's sin, an atonement for that sin. The goat's life was offered as a substitute. Once again, substitutionary atonement. And it was receiving, this goat was receiving the punishment of God for Israel's sin so that the people didn't have to. That was one goat. The next goat, the priest would take his hands and he would place them on, a he- on the head of that goat and he would symbolically cast all of the sins of Israel on that goat. And then he would, uh, somebody would lead the goat out of the camp of Israel and they would send it out into the wilderness away from the people. And this was a very powerful illustration about how God was removing the sin of the people and putting it far away from them. Just like... Psalm, I think it's 103, says that he casts our sin as far as the east is from the west. So the scapegoat, as that goat was called, was a, 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 a just visible illustration of what God was doing with their sin. Blood was covering over their sin. Their sin was being cast away. And that's what would happen one day a year on the Day of Atonement. And so you see how all this fits together. The rituals, the priests, the purity, all culminating in the Day of Atonement. And then it goes back through... The impact of that purity on the nation, the impact of those priests on the nation, the impact of those rituals on the nation. The last two chapters are are basically Moses saying, hey guys, I think God's serious about this stuff, so I think we should do it. That's what chapters 26 and 27 are about. I, I, I really, I don't think that we should mess around with this God because I've been in his presence on Mount Sinai and I think we should actually do this stuff. That's what 26 and 27 are. You see, the best way to understand how Leviticus fits in to this part of the Bible is to look at the last page of Exodus and the first page of the book of Numbers. And so you've already, I've already read you the last page of the book of Exodus where Moses was un, unable to enter the presence of God. Flip to the very back of Leviticus to the first page of the book of Numbers. Holiness was the problem for Israel. God was holy, they weren't. The book of Leviticus is about how Israel can prepare to enter the presence of God, which is what they were designed to do. The rituals, the priests, the purity, the Day of Atonement was all God's prescription. And so everybody's there at the first page of the book of Numbers, the very first verse, Numbers chapter 1, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, where? In the tent of meeting. So do you see what happened? God's people took God seriously, believed what he said, and it worked. (laughs) Imagine that. All those goats. All those sacrifices. All those festivals. All of those celebrations. It worked. We're here. Moses is meeting with God, whereas at the end of Exodus, he couldn't. That's the point of the book of Leviticus. God has been faithful, and he has invited human beings into his presence, which is where he wants them. 
And so I hope you've gotten this. Let's, let's take a few moments to just summarize what we've been talking about. And this is, like I said, this is where it gets just very rich for us. What should we take away from the book of Leviticus? Well, first of all, we take away that God is holy. You see, these rituals and these laws were given to Israel so that they would be thinking about God on a daily basis. They would be thinking about their sin on a daily basis. They would be thinking about their holiness and God's holiness on a daily basis. We see this uh, even before, um, jo- uh, even before uh, the Abraham was called in the book of Job. We see Job being concerned for his children and offering sacrifices for them. It is, it is not a far stretch to, be think, to, to understand that God wants you to, your, your mind captive to thoughts about Him every single moment of every single day. God is that holy, and He has designed you to fix your eyes on His holiness. And so let me ask you, how often do you think about God? It may seem like a simple question, but just like A.W. Tozer said, When I ask you the question, who is God, your answer is the most important thing about you. And so when I ask you the question, how often do you think about God on a daily basis, that is one of the most important things about you today, right here, right now. Do some self-examination. How often do you think about God? How often do you come into His presence on Sundays when we gather together as a people and you don't bring uh, an offering of bread or you don't bring pigeons or you don't bring animals to sacrifice? But yes, you should bring an offering of praise and be ready to repent. Just like the rituals in 1 through 7, 5 were meant to say thank you, Three were meant to say, I'm sorry. Is that the pattern of your worship when you come in to God's presence with the people of God? I would urge you to prepare. This is one of, this is one of the things that we've done as a family intentionally every single Saturday night when I pray with my daughters. For years now, I've, I've, I've prayed this. God, we thank you for this day. You've been good to us. We love you. And now I pray that you would prepare our hearts. Listen to the language, it's important. You would prepare our hearts to worship with the church tomorrow. You would prepare our hearts to worship, not at, right? Because the church isn't a location, but with the church tomorrow. And you know what? This is not bragging, okay? I just want to show you the importance of language. Every single one of my daughters prayed that without being compelled to last night. So what's their perspective when they come into his gates on Sunday mornings? This is special. This is our church family. God is present when we gather together to worship him in a way that you can't experience by yourself. And so God, we recognize the need for preparation. Y'all know Satan's active on Sunday mornings, right? Like you're getting ready, looking in the mirror, and you're, you're hearing the whispers. Or your kid comes running in with no pants on, and, you, and you're like, oh yeah, okay, it's, the battle has begun, right? And not today, Satan. You know, that's <laughs> the Andy Minio song, not today, Satan. How much do you prepare I'm not going to go, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to go into, 
the ultimate example of preparation for worship as tailgating for football because it's too fresh, okay? But, but, but you just go think about that and how much people prepare to go to a football game and how much we don't prepare to come to worship. Y'all just, that's, that's homework. Y'all just take that home and meditate on that, all right? But what have we seen? We've seen God is holy. He is worth the preparation. End of Exodus, beginning of Numbers, we are designed for God's presence. God is holy, so prepare yourselves when you come into his presence. Come with thanksgiving and bring in praise. Bring your offerings, bring your tithes, bring your joy. But I will tell you, many people today, the moment that you begin to try and give an answer for what, why you believe what you believe, Many people will call you on the fact that you don't live by the Levitical law. And here's how the argument typically goes. Somebody says, well, uh, why do you think that this issue or that issue, like homosexuality or gay marriage, why do you think that that's wrong? Why do you think that, that man and woman were designed for each other? Why can't man and man be designed for each other? And you, and, and you root your answer in the book of Genesis in Sodom and Gomorrah, in the law of God, right? And you just, just pointing out, just saying, well, God designed it this way, and God's law is very clear about these things. And they say, but you don't believe in that law. When you say, well, yeah, I do. They say, no, you don't. You don't follow Leviticus 19.19 19 because you have polyester clothing with interwoven fabrics. I've heard it, y'all. This is real, right? This is, I'm not making this up. I've heard people say, you don't follow the law of God because you eat shrimp and bacon. Last night, hallelujah, amen, I did. <laughs> and so you don't care about the law, Christian. You're all, all over here saying that gay people shouldn't do, the, they, that, that this, should, this is not right, this is not the way God designed it. But you don't care about the law yourself. And most Christians, when they hear that, they're like, I don't know how to, how to answer that. And so I hope you've seen today that that law is specific for Israel's worship. To designate them as a people of God, God was setting them on a specific purpose to live radically God-centered lifestyles, to protect them from things that would harm them, and to distinguish them from people in the nations. He was helping them understand his holiness. That's what we've seen, right? And so the application for us is, is that that law was specific to Israel. But the God-centeredness of our lifestyle is still the way we live today. No area is off limits to my God. If he is truly my Lord, he's Lord over it all. That's how we answer that. It's not that we don't care about the law, but we recognize that the law was given to Israel for a specific time and a specific place. And then we point them to the fact that Jesus says that he fulfilled that law. All of these rituals, all of these sacrifices that had to be offered, what you're about to see here in a moment is that Jesus fulfilled them all. But secondly, God has invited us into his presence. God has invited us into his 
presence. I hope you've seen that in the book of, of Leviticus. God created us to live in his presence, and all throughout scripture, this is what he wants to restore in our lives. Psalm 1611 says, you make known to me the path of life, and your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is where your heart longs to be. This is where my heart longs to be. This is the heart of every human being. We long to be in the presence of God. Augustine said we have a God-shaped hole inside of us. Nothing else can fill it apart from Him. We were all designed that way. And through the book of Leviticus, God says, come on in. I want you to experience my presence, Israel. And, and to us, living all these years later, He's saying, folks, I want you to, you to enter my presence. I want you to experience it. I want you to encounter me. I want you to know me as I designed you to know me. But the problem is, is that we don't sacrifice. And why? Why don't we? That's the third thing. And honestly, I think the most awesome thing. In Leviticus, God is laying a foundation for what Jesus would accomplish in his death. In Genesis and Exodus and Job, we've seen glimmers of the Messiah. In Leviticus, it is rich. The Messiah is all over the pages of Leviticus. It's where if you understand literature and you read the Bible as literature, the foreshadowing just comes in just waves. And you're like, yes, I see this. I see this. Because the fact is, is that Jesus is our high priest who represents God to us and us to God. First Timothy chapter 2, verse 4 says, There is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. He is our great high priest. First Peter chapter 2, verse 22 says that he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth, because all high priests must have great moral integrity, and there is no one who has more integrity than the Lord Jesus Christ. He's perfect. And yet when this high priest, our high priest Jesus, came into uh, the world, he didn't offer a bull or a goat or a lamb. What did he offer? He offered himself. He laid himself up there on the altar to not only be the high priest, but to be the sacrifice for our sins. And John the Baptist pointed to this in John chapter 1, verse 29. When he looked at Jesus, John the Baptist did, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, For our sake God made him who knew no sin, he was perfect, to be sin for us. Why? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus deals with our holiness problem because he is our pure, perfect, sacrificial lamb. But he's also the scapegoat. Because as Jesus took those sins upon himself... I think there is this unseen thing happening in the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember when Jesus was sweating drops of blood? Why? Because God the Father was there. Jesus was the scapegoat. And he put his hands, spiritually speaking, invisibly upon the head of his son. And he cast all the sins of his people onto the Lord Jesus. And the great weight of that sin is why Jesus thought that he was going to die before he ever got to the cross. He prayed, not, he prayed, Father, if it is your will, let this cup pass from me. Because he felt like he was about to die. Staring de- over into the deep well of the Father's wrath on sin. Because the Father was placing the sins of all the, those who would believe in the Lord Jesus on Jesus at that moment in time. Because he was doing that, that great weight was upon him. And then as he took it to the cross and he died, just like that scapegoat went away into the wilderness, Jesus went away into the grave. He took those sins. 
He took our shame and He went into the wilderness of death. Jesus is the one who maintained His ritual purity. This is the kind of purity that Jesus had when He was on this earth. That when He would touch lepers, what would happen? They'd be healed. Now, if an Israelite touched a leper or a dead body or anything like that, that death would be transmitted over to the Israelite who touched it. But Jesus is so radically pure, so holy, so righteous, so perfect, that when He would touch the unclean, He would not become unclean, but they would become clean. And you and I have the opportunity to be, to be united by faith to Jesus because He is our tent of meeting. He is our reason to celebrate. He is our holiness. He is our purity. He is the one who sets us apart. And He is the one who transforms us to make us a blessing to those around us and to all nations. I, will, I would persuade you that thus far into the Old Testament, we have not heard the gospel like we have already from the book of Leviticus. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And maybe today you've understood what it cost for you to enter into God's presence as you never have before. If you're coming to this fresh understanding, and maybe you're recognizing that you've never really put your faith and your trust in Jesus as your sin bearer like this, then today is a day for you to respond. Don't you, you, need to, you need to obey Moses in chapters 26 and 27 to say, Hey folks, God is holy. He's not messing around. He wants you to be in His presence and He has provided for you to come. And so today the invitation is come. Come into God's presence. But maybe you're a Christian. You've trusted Christ as your sin bearer. But the fact is, is that you don't think about living in the presence of God on a daily basis. Can I tell you? that this is why we are here, is to experience, to encounter, and to enjoy on a daily basis, moment by moment, to take captive every one of the, the times that we have to live for the glory of God, to live in His presence. And the fact is, is that you want joy, and you want peace, and you want hope. But dear friend, if you're living apart from the presence of God, as somebody who's put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ, then you will have no hope, and you will have no peace, and you will have no joy. God has made a provision for, ho for your holiness, so don't try to come into His presence with strange fire, because you will be consumed. Only Jesus can enter into the presence of God. And when we're united with Him by faith, now Jesus says, my child, my brother, come with me. And so the invitation is not just for those who've never trusted in Jesus. The invitation today is for those who have trusted in Jesus, but have never been, have never been taught that this is why we live each day. It is our goal. It is our mission. And so my prayer for you today is that you would see that this, far from being a book that you get lost in when you try to read the Bible in a year, this is good news for you because it describes how much God wants you to come into His presence. And so that's the invitation today. As we have entered into the presence of God, as we've sung to the Lord, as we've given to the Lord, as we've heard the, the word of the Lord preached, now it's our opportunity to respond to say thank you thank you for what you've done, Jesus, in making it possible for me to come into your presence and to kneel before your throne and to encounter you in a way that transforms me at my very core. That is what the Christian life is all about.
Let's pray together.